the age of personalised medicine has arrived. Be sure to check out our new FX Medicine podcast series, FX Omics with Dr. Mark Donoghue. Explore the genomic landscape and the clinical opportunities enabling you to offer truly personalised healthcare. Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining us on the line today is Emma Sutherland, who's a successful mum, author and clinical naturopath, and her mission in life is to inspire women to get their mojo back. Her book, 50 Foods That Will Change Your Life, is the ultimate guide to healthy eating for women. Emma was the expert nutritionist on the popular TV show Eat Yourself Sexy on Lifestyle U. Eat Yourself Sexy encourages women to take control of their lives and get back on the road to loving themselves. Emma is a regular media commentator and she's been extensively featured in radio and print media. Welcome to FX Medicine, Emma. How are you going? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, thanks for joining us. Now, I want, to go, I want to go a little bit into your career and your past. So tell us where it began from for you to become a naturopath, I guess, first? Yeah, well, I think um, I was pretty lucky. I grew up in, in a family that uh, we used a lot of natural medicine, and I didn't realise at the time that we were different to everyone else. You know, we would take <laughs> echo, it's true. Uh, we would take echinacea in winter. Uh, our doctor was also a herbalist, and it wasn't until I was probably about 16 and all my friends were popping Panadols for their period pains, and I was well, why don't you just have some ginger tea? And I realised that we were different. Um, So for me, there was only that way to begin with. And then many years ago, my mum moved to a tiny little Greek island called Ithaca. And I spent sort of my late teens and early 20s, uh, a lot of my time over in Ithaca. And and it's a tiny island. It's so tiny. And I'd watch the old people and they had what they call in Greek. It's a word. It's called kefi. And kefi means a vitality and, and a joy that that is indescribable. And I would just watch them and, and they were just doing all the simple things. You know, they were growing the food that they ate, they would walk the mountains, they would eat simply, they would have community, they would do all the things that were so simple but yet resulted in this sense of vitality. And I think I was about 25 when I realised that I wanted to take that sense of, of kefi and bring it back and, and give it to people somehow. But I didn't know the how. Uh, I just saw this abundance of health that I thought that's the way we're supposed to live. And I got back to, uh, well, I came to Sydney. I moved to Sydney at that point, And I stumbled across uh, an ad for a naturopathic course. And I thought, wow, that is what I want to do. That's and, a really weird calling. When you saw, you saw an ad? Yeah. And it called to you, really? An ad for, yeah, for ACNT. Right. that's where I studied. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I went to an open day and this whole world opened up and I thought, my goodness, it's so familiar because that's, you know, I grew up using, you know, herbs and things like that, but I didn't know that that's what it was called. Right. And, and it all sort of fell into place and I thought, this is what I want to do. And so I studied, um, I did my advanced diploma and I did my Bachelor of Health Science at the same time in the, in the four years, so mm-hmm. I did like a double degree. Um, 
and then I started practicing straight away. I was I was just leaping into it. <laughs> now, now I've I've got to just go back to your family here. Um, mm. you, you know, you're mentioning Kefi, and this is, I guess, one of my things. We we talk about. Uh, well, you mentioned it actually. Why don't you just have some ginger tea? For those mm. people who have grown up not living the lifestyle, not living that kefi, that having that joy, that mobility, that connection, um, to ask them for a simple treatment to be the answer to their ills, I wonder how much you know bang for buck you're going to get when you're only asking for a pill, if you like. Yeah. Yeah, and it's a different paradigm, isn't it? Yeah, whereas you've lived this, you've grown up with this, your gut, if you like, has grown up with this healthy eating, this joie de vivre, this kefi, and we know that the the joy and sleep and connection and stress mm. have intrinsic connections to even your gut, you know? It's phenomenally profound, yeah. And, and, you know, there's been times in my life where my health has really not been good mm. um, and and it was you know that that true belief in the power of the body to heal which is that classic naturopathic yeah. philosophy and the true belief that natural medicines can really profoundly alter and improve your health so um, I went to India to study my master's homeopathy mm. when I finished my my um, naturopathic course and unfortunately I came home with some extra friends and I came <laughs> home with um, with hepatitis E. Oh, and I was goodness. incredibly unwell, and uh, at the time, because it's so rare, nobody te- nobody checked me for it. Mm. So I just got increasingly unwell. Anyway, eventually we found out what it was, and and it was it was turning to you know the power of herbs, herbal medicine, to really nurture and nourish my liver back to health. And and it was things like that that made me really think, you know, I mean, I love Western medicine. It's incredibly powerful. And I think that you can combine the, the, the two worlds really yes. well. Yeah, yes. That's my thing as well with my patients is you take the best of both worlds. It can all work together. Absolutely. Although I do, I do make the point that I wonder if, you know, what you were speaking about before, the kefi, that, that connection, it's not just... A herb. It's not just um, this sort of um, exogenous type treatment that we're thinking about, but it's a real connection to society, a meaning. I wonder if, you know, that's what naturopathy is giving patients that medicine isn't. When you're in clinical practice and, and people walk into a clinic and they're automatically feeling relaxed and safe and that they can express their fears and concerns and they feel very listened to, I think the power of that exchange is quite remarkable. Mm. Now, we're sort of getting off onto a track, but I do want to delve in a little bit further because mm. you you were involved in that TV show, Eat Yourself Sexy. With regards to eating for women rather than eating for, say, families, why, mm. that, why that focus on women? Well, the, the show was a really interesting experience and the focus was on the average woman. And oh. we took eight women, so we picked eight women out of all the women that applied, and these were your everyday women, you know, some living out in the, you know, far out of Sydney, some in the middle of Sydney, and we changed what they eat. We changed how they moved, how they slept, and we did a whole heap of medical testing before we did the eight-week block, and then we repeated it at the end, and it just showed the remarkable difference you can make. And, of course, from my angle, I really wanted to work on inflammation and get 
get the inflammation down. Mm. And we could see those markers move, you know, your CRP, your um, ESR. We could see those markers move just through the diet. And, of course, the marketing angle is always going to be on, you know, weight loss and feeling sexy, and that's a great hook. But essentially what we did was reduce the inflammation in these women's bodies and along the way change their mindset about how they looked at themselves. Now, obviously, you know, that I guess there's a limitation to what you can cover in a show, but but with regards to the blue zones and what we spoke about earlier, Kefi, mm. this connection, you know, did any of these women experience, um, you know, a greater feeling of connection, of social interactivity, involvement? Yeah, it's interesting because uh, there was three of them that were quite socially isolated, but they, they were choosing to be socially isolated because of how they felt about their perception of themselves. Right. And so at the end of the program, they were more confident and therefore they were starting to re-immerse themselves in their social circles again. So I think that women tend to do this. They tend to isolate themselves when they're not feeling confident with how they feel and how they look. Okay, so I, I know this is probably, you know, outside of the bounds of eat yourself sexy, but has anybody looked at what they're like afterwards? Has, any, has there been any engagement afterwards to say, how are you going now, six months, 12 months down the track? Um, not officially, but social media-wise, yes. And one of the women now does triathlons. Oh, my She's God. incredible. She has changed her life so much, and, and she's still you know, sends me little updates and, and says how profoundly it changed her life. So it's beautiful, isn't it? It's remarkable. That's yeah. very, very cool. Yeah. Now, today we're going to be discussing how to be successful in a busy, noisy world. So I guess so firstly, what qualities do you feel a practitioner needs to have in order to be successful? Oh, there's so many. Uh, but look, one is confidence because it's something that's intangible and something that your patients will feel. Mm, mm. And it's something that cannot, um, you know, when, when, a, when a patient walks into your room, if you are not confident, and I don't mean um, being overconfident, I just mean quietly confident in your ability to help them, then you know, they've got to feel that because they have to believe in the process, which means they have to believe in you first mm-hmm. and foremost. Mm-hmm. Um, another one is persistence. I mean, I sort of mentor a lot of, students and a lot of new grads and I think the number one quality that I see needed is persistence because this kind of career is not easy Mm. Um, and it's and it's not um, as glamorous as what it's made out to be it's a lot of hard work and you need to be incredibly persistent Uh, and to be persistent for long enough that means you've got to have passion to back it up because if you don't have the passion your persistence is going to falter and you're going to fall off track so with regards to confidence you know I mean any all practitioners when they get out there. I can still remember my first day on the ward. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) You know, as a nurse, a man, you know, talking about lack of confidence. And yet you turn up for the second day and the third day and the fourth. Yeah. That's what gives you confidence. So I guess that persistence is really the first one, which will give you the confidence. Yes, that's right. But I think you have to believe in yourself. I mean, I remember standing there because I'd never done TV before, never done TV. And then I landed this gig and I remember the first day of filming. I mean, we're standing there surrounded by a film crew. There's lights, there's booms, there's this, there's that. There's a whole lot of people looking at me. And you just have to step into yourself and just step up and just do it. 
You know, so you really have to believe in yourself and your abilities as a person, not just as a practitioner, but as a person, you know, your ability to connect with people, mm. your ability to uh, listen and gain rapport with people. Uh, I think sometimes you just have to step into it and believe in yourself. So I'm going to ask you, Emma, I just have this feeling of relaxed confidence with you. Um, yeah. Were you always like that when you were a little girl? Was that you? Oh, that is such a great question. No, I don't think it was. In one way, yes, and another way, no. I mean, I'm quite, um, I think I was quite shy mm. in many ways as a child. I loved books. I spent all my time reading. Mm. And I remember I didn't, I had, I had lots of friends, but only a few really close friends. Yeah. And, you know, for example, I don't even know anyone from my high school now. You know, I'm, I'm a bit of a loner in many ways, mm. but I think um, you gain confidence as you get older. I mean, I'm 45 now and I'm loving stepping into this part of my life where I, I really feel like I know who I am and what I want in life. And I think that helps too. Having, having a bit of maturity on your side is, is a big advantage. Yeah, for sure. I just think it's really interesting how other people see personas and they see the end product and they mm. think I could never be that. But when you look back at the beginnings of these personas, it's really interesting the changes that have occurred. So you've got to, you know, you were mentioning confidence, persistence, and passion. And mm. I, I think there is also has to be included a, a willingness to change, to evolve. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. That's got to be a big one. And I think, um, you know, as a natural um, practitioner, a natural health practitioner, we're constantly learning. And mm. whether that is we're learning, I mean, I'm always studying, I'm always doing a course of some kind, but you're also always learning about yourself and you're learning about um, your, your strengths, your weaknesses, um, your traits, your passions, your personality. So I think the more you learn about yourself, the more confident you can be in that. Okay. So now you're a successful mum, we mentioned. Yes. And yes. motherhood is one of the detractors of confidence in, in many women. How yes. did you surmount that? That, you know, that it, it's very common that women are or feel isolated. Um, and even I've seen this in extremely competent women that I work with, like they're just mm. amazing people. And even these seemingly flawless women felt um, that they lacked confidence when they'd taken time off to, ha to have a bub and they were re-entering yeah. the workforce. It's so common. Yes, it is. It's incredibly common. Um, and I think for me, uh, you know, the sheer brutality of, of being a mum day in, day out was the thing that really honestly just brought me to my knees. It's incredibly um, exhausting. And, and I've always been a single mum and I don't you know, have a lot of support around me in Sydney. So it's been a very, very it's probably the hardest thing I've ever done. Mm. It's been a lot harder than becoming a successful practitioner um, or any of those other things I've done in my life. Right. It's, it's definitely been one of the hardest things I've done. Okay. So was it being a practitioner that helped you get your mojo back or was it being a mum that helped you get your mojo back to become a successful practitioner? Um, no, it was, um, it was definitely being a successful practitioner. Gotcha. That gave me the skills I needed. Um, when I became a mum, my daughter's seven and a half now. So that was seven years ago. So about halfway through my career, um, I think the, you know, 
the the exhaustion from that was was the the brutal part, oh. but it was being uh, being able to put things in place, like taking my adrenal tonics day in day out, like taking magnesium day in day out. You know, all of those things that I could do to help prop myself up, right, um, got me through. But it was a scrape through. I have to say, it was a it was a bare bones. Scrape well, I gotta say, you know, doing it on your own, man. Yeah, you know, like that's that's an achievement in itself. You know, one thing I look at is that for me, there was in relation to my how to work out, you know, being a mom and my career and that sort of thing is that there was no option to fail. Yeah. Because I had this baby yeah. that was a hundred percent reliant on me, and I had to put a roof over our head and food on the table and pay health insurance and all of those things that you do as a parent. So the leverage that I gained from becoming a mum was amazing because there was just simply no option of failing. Gotcha. It wasn't, it, I was, it, yeah, it was, it was like survival, you know. It's like I have to be successful yep. even more now. So that was good. How did you, you know, use what you'd gained with, you know, struggling through with being a mum to getting your first break and then, uh, you know, into into television land and, and all that sort of thing. Oh, I actually, yeah, it was the other way around. So oh. that before, yeah, so I looked, this was about 10 years ago, I realised that there was only so many people I could help when I was working one-on-one. Right. That, that was a capped capacity to help people and my passion was to help, you know, women and families and I wanted to get a bigger platform in order to do that. And so I took the leap of hiring a publicist, which at the time was like crazy expensive. I had to put her on a six-month contract and a retainer every month. And I remember thinking, what am I doing? Like, am I crazy? This is so much money. Yeah. Um, But she was great. So she helped me get, you know, into sort of writing for things like Marie Claire. And and she, she got me pockets of... Um, exposure that then allowed me to then get the TV show. And then, interestingly, I'd been working with a patient on on a book, a patient that I had treated for endometriosis. And, and she said to me, you know, Emma, I can't find any books that tell me what you told me in our appointments about how food can really make a difference to your health and what food you should eat for different conditions. And she right. said, I really want to write that book and I want you to write it with me. And I was like, okay, great. So we'd written this book. It took two years and we'd finished the manuscript. We'd sent it to every publisher, been rejected by every publisher. (laughs) Um, And it wasn't until I picked up an agent. Uh, I was picked up by Chic Celebrity at the time and uh, put under their talent house. And they said to me, oh, you've got a book and you haven't published it? Why didn't you tell us? And I said, well, we've sent it to everybody. Everyone's rejected it. We haven't got anywhere with it. And they said, don't worry, we know someone at Penguin. Literally a week later, we were signing contracts for the book. So, and then and then in the midst of all of that, I fell pregnant. So right. <laughs> it was a bit of a crazy time. <laughs> okay, okay but, but I guess, you know, the lesson that I'm pulling out of this is, you can't do it all yourself and and there are experts in other areas that you should and could be relying on rather than trying to be everything to everybody. So, yeah, you know, you say yeah. a leap of faith and that's true, but hey, what a leap of faith that was. Yeah, uh, definitely. And, you know, th- this is a really good point is we need to know our strengths and stick to them. So one of the first things I ever outsourced 
um, and this was literally 14 years ago, was my bookkeeping. And I've, I've actually been to uni and studied accounting. I didn't finish it, but I studied accounting and yet it was the first thing I outsourced. The reason was because I hated that part <laughs> yeah, of the business. You knew um, you hated it. <laughs> yep. I really knew I hated it because I dropped out of it at uni and, and I just, yeah, we've got to, when we can afford it, we've got to outsource the things we like the least. Yeah, okay. So that's a reasonable thing. You know, there are some things that you need to just do to get on with it. And and I guess for, you know, the fledgling practitioner, you yeah. really do have to do your own BAS statements. You really do oh, yeah. have to do everything. But I guess Absolutely. you get to a point where you can go, you know what, I need to focus on this and to do this, I can't do that. Exactly. And you've got to think, um, you know, what is my time worth? If it takes me six hours to do a BAS and or I can pay my bookkeeper two hours and she'll do it in two hours, what is that extra four hours worth to me and how do I utilise it? Now, that's a really important point and something that I've never thought of before. How much am I worth and how mm. much is it worth paying somebody to do that so that I can create the better wealth? Exactly. That's right. I mean, I'd much prefer to spend four hours in front of patients than to spend those four hours trying to struggle through a bad statement. And I know I'm going to be making better money doing that anyway. Right. So. <laughs> this whole break into success, how does the average, now normally the vernacular would be Joe, but let's say Josephine. Yes. How would the average Josephine, the struggling, fledgling practitioner, the, yes. the the practitioner that's just come out of college and is going this mm. big starry-eyed thing about, I want to change the world, I want to help people, but I've no idea where to start. How do you help somebody to cement in their minds what their strengths are, where they should be headed? Um, that's, that is a good point. I think it depends on how much personal development they've done. Um, to begin with, I mean, I'm a big believer in personal development and I'm constantly doing that side of things as well. Um, but the first thing is to find which area of clinical practice, if clinical practice is where you want to be mm. rather than research or writing or something else, is what area of clinical practice lights you up the most. You know, is it working with, you know, guys? Is it working with women? Like find that avatar, that perfect patient, yep. and really then think about where does that perfect patient live? Where do they exercise? Where do they shop? and try and get in front of them. So whether it's, you know, a notice up on Woolies, the Woolworths board, you know, aimed at your perfect demographic, or whether it's a free talk at a community hall aimed at your perfect demographic. But the most important thing is to define that ideal patient and just talk their language and think the way they think so that you can really get in their head and work out what their pain points are. What are they struggling with? What are they? What information do they need? Because there's no point just pumping out a whole heap of information via a blog or a website if it doesn't appeal to anybody. I guess this paints a, a clearer picture for the need of for internship. Ah, um, uh, yeah. You know, yes. We yep. we talk about mentorship, somebody helping us, but an mm. internship is where you are placed in uh, in various positions. Um, so that you can gain experience across a, a broad range of, of areas. Um, yeah. So let's talk about that for a tip. Yeah. Look, I think other industries do it a lot better than us in this space. And I think that, you know, we, we were all those sort of young, struggling and, you know, new graduates at some stage. And we kind of owe it to give a little back. Uh, and I think it's important that, that we do somehow 
you know, mentor and help those younger graduates. Mm. I mean, I get a lot of a lot of people contacting me, you know, picking my brain to ask me questions, and that's that's great. And then I've also got other um, interns that they want to get really good at blogging, and so what they'll do is that they'll say, "Hey, Emma, I'm going to blog, and I'm going to do two blogs a month. Um, can you edit them? Can you help me develop my writing style?" And I'll say, "Yeah, of course I can, but I want to publish that on my website and put you as the author. Is that okay too?" So, I think the thing with an internship is finding a win-win. Yeah, you know, finding it. How does how does it benefit me, and how does it benefit you? Yeah. and that could be a money exchange. It could be a time exchange. It could be, hey, um, you know, intern, can I please? Can you please research this exact? Find some papers for me on this topic. Let's learn about this together because I've got a patient that's come up with this, and I need to learn more. Um, but yeah, I think interning is such a valuable way for people to accelerate and fast track their career. We spoke about what qualities practitioners need to have previously. Well, what about things that practitioners need to be doing to be successful? They need to be constantly learning, that's for sure, because yeah. in this career you can never stop learning and that's what actually excites me the most is we can never know it all we can always learn more um, so they need to be learning um, and I think that there has to be some level of social media presence it doesn't mean you have to post five times a day but just a regular consistent social media presence is great and you may only have two or three clients but if those two or three clients feel that they're getting progress and they feel listened to and that they feel that you're on that path with them, then ask them to refer. I think a lot of the time people's confidence stops them from asking their patients to to actively refer to them. And, it's, and it can be so simple. It's like, hey, do you know anyone else that's struggling? Because I'd really love to help them. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, it reminds me of, I think it was an intake form of a practitioner, a real like he was a brilliant practitioner and really cared for his patients. And one of the things he put at the bottom of the intake form was, look, it's my goal to be, you know, the practitioner for both you and your friends um, and to care for you. And if you feel that they would benefit from my care, please tell them about me. It was a very simple sentence at the bottom of the form. Nobody had to say anything, but the uncomfortable topic, if you like, was taken out of the mouth. So you never had to broach it. And yet everybody knew that, you know, that's what his goal was, was to be the, the practitioner for not just the patient in front of him, but their friends and family as well. I think it was a really, really brilliant thing that he did. Oh, absolutely. And look, when I set up um, this clinic, Studio U, three years ago, I really sat down and I looked at, you know, through all of my reporting and I looked at where all my new patients were coming from. So were they coming from word of mouth, referred from other practitioners, from Google, wherever it was. And it was about 90% of patients were referred by word of mouth. And I thought, you know what, the whole thing that I want to do is actually reward my current patients for referring and then give some reward to the person that's coming in. So we set up a referral system whereby if if a patient if a current patient refers somebody, they both get 15% off their next appointment. So the new person will get 15% off their initial and the next time that patient comes in that has referred them, it's like a bonus. They get, oh wow, that's that's great. Thanks so much. <laughs> that's great. So it's a win-win all round. Look, I've got to say I do love this win-win. It was something that's that smacked with from my talking with um Keone Moore about her journey. Yes. 
Yeah. You know, and she goes, it's got to be win, win, win. Has to be win, win, win for everybody. Yeah, um, I agree. So when you're talking about these fledgling naturopaths and the, you know, the fears and the aspirations of opening the doors to your clinic or joining a clinic and starting afresh, you're sitting yeah. at your desk, there's nobody there. How do you actually get clients booking in to see you? Yeah, well, I remember my first six months in clinical practice. I think I saw about three patients. But you know what I did? I, I wrote so many handouts and I researched so many conditions that then by the time people started trickling in, I at least had a base of handouts that I could say, hey, you know, here's a great handout on anti-inflammatory foods. Or So don't waste your time and don't get into your own headspace and, and become negative. You know, to make make the most of the time because when you do get busy, you'll wish you had more of that kind of time. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And you know what? They're, these handouts and these refreshers of concepts mm. that you'll be talking to clients about, I can still remember uh, an integrative GP um, telling me that he'd, he'd be talking to his patients about leaky gut They'd walk home, they'd talk to their spouse who has not seen the GP and, yeah. uh, and he would uh, try and disseminate the information that this GP had told his patient saying, I've got holes in my gut. And his <laughs> wife's going, what? <laughs> you know, so there's these concepts that really need a backup and a refresher. And oh, what did she say? What exercise was it? What foods yeah. were they again? What do I have yeah. to avoid? All of these things, like they're so important to have at your beck and call so you can go bang. Yeah, and it's and it's invaluable because one of one of our clinic philosophies is empowerment and education for clients, and oh, we're it. very much a paperless clinic. And even our toilet paper is not made from paper, and we're so environmental. But you know what? The one thing we do do is we print these handouts at the time of the appointment, and we print their dose sheet telling them exactly what we want them to do between appointments, yep. and give them to the patient on the spot and go through them, because. It's so much more powerful and you're much more likely to get success that way. Can I ask you, using this sort of system, how often or do you, um, on your second visit with the patient, um, mm. do you ask them to go away and say, look, there's going to be this period of change and there's going to be some questions coming up that where you go, what do you, what? What do you mean by that? Because it's yeah. new. It's new for them. So mm. do, do how often do you find that people come back and go, you know what, I don't get it. I don't understand. Or... Very rarely, very rarely, because I'm very directional in the way I speak with my clients. And um, I've studied a lot of functional medicine with Chris Kresser and various people. So I do, and because I've got that Bachelor of, of Science, I'm very metric and fact-based as well. Yep. And so when we're looking at black and white numbers, you know, it, it, patients really do understand because we give them this education of this is what leaky gut is, here's your handout. But the other thing that I always say to patients is please email me if you have any questions. Never hesitate to email me between appointments. Yeah. And because I don't like them calling me. <laughs> it's really inconvenient when they call you. Yeah. But when they email you, it gives me time and I've got an autoresponder on my emails, which lets them know that you know, I may not get back. I, I know. I know you have. But I loved it. I loved what it said. It was, look, I'm, I'm focusing on my clients right now. Yeah, you know, I'll, exactly. I'll attend to your email as soon as I can. And it's like, it's cool. I understand that. 
Yeah. And so clients will, they'll pop me an email in between if they are confused about things. Um, and because as I say to them, I just want the ball to keep rolling. Yeah. I don't want you to stop doing things because you're not sure of what to do. You just get in touch with me if that's the case. Now we have to obviously broach that. Some clients will stop fall off the wagon and then, you know, they'll eventually come back and wander back in and go, you know, I remember this sort of stuff. Talking about getting back their, your mojo or their mojo, how do you inspire, especially women, I guess, to mm. get their mojo back? Yeah, and this happens, you know, this is a cycle that happens and, and it's interesting being in clinical practice so long because, you know, women do keep coming back every few years for that little fine-tuning, yeah. that little tweak. Um, but it's usually the pattern is that, that the woman has become overwhelmed with the amount of things that's going on in her life and so her self-care will drop. And once her self-care drops, then the food starts going out, the sleep starts going out, and then before you know it, she's feeling awful again. And I think when this happens, like I just had a patient contact me this week and she'd done our fat loss program. She'd had ridiculously great results. Um, but she's had a lot of stress. Her mum is in hospital. It's It's been really hard for her. And she emailed me saying, I'm completely off the wagon. I've put the weight back on. I'm really feeling flat. And I said, it's okay. Book in. What we need to do is find some very small action points that you can do. Because what I'm always saying to my clients is, you know, I want to set you up for success, not ever for failure. And if we need to step it right down to, hey, you know what, you're going to drink two liters of water every day. You're going to get to bed by 10 p.m. That's all I want you to do for now. Right. Just have to step it back, step it back and get them to commit you know, and understand that you you will be, you know, following up on them and they are accountable and you're making this deal. Okay. So now that's a really interesting point that Andrew Heyman, I loved his way of approaching this. He warned yeah. his patients. He would say, you will get sick of me asking this on a scale, <laughs> on a scale of one yeah. to 10, how likely <laughs> are you? <laughs> dot, dot, dot. And, and he would, he would use that to get gain commitment. So what sort yes. of tricks do you use to gain commitment from your patients? I think my skill lies in getting people excited about possibilities mm. and about how they can feel. Because I know that especially for a woman, every woman wants to wake up in the morning feeling good. I don't, I'm not saying she wants to bounce out of bed every morning. That's unrealistic. But every woman wants to wake up feeling good and strong and healthy within her own body. And so I think it's definitely about getting her excited about that possibility. First of all, she's got to she's got to hook into that future self and see that future self and go, yes, I want that. Because if you find that hook and what that means to them, you know, it doesn't mean that she's going to have more energy playing with her kids or yell at her kids less. Or maybe she's actually going to want to make love to her husband. You know, yeah. what does that actually mean? Yeah. And how? what's that hook? Like what's her why? And if you can hook into the why and keep that, um, keep that current in your conversations and languaging with her, then she'll keep going. What about any other sort of key points that we need to help other practitioners with, with regards to uh, either being, getting, or keeping, maintaining success? I oh, love this question. Uh, for me, I think one of the other things I've learned that works really well is that just say yes. So any opportunity that comes your way, just jump in and don't get bogged down in the why, the how, the what, the where, the logistics. Just jump in and say yes. And then 
you can work it out later. But if you if you hesitate too much and like, oh no, I don't have the skills for that, or I don't have the resources, just just jump in and say yes. I can't tell you the amount of times that I've just said yes and I've got off the call or the email and thought, oh my god, like how on earth am I going to make that happen? But you know what? You always just do. Things just fall into place when they're meant to be. Okay. So, yeah, so just, just jump in, dive in. This reminds me of the proverbs a bit. You know, you've always got one saying yes and one saying no. You know, just say yes. That reminds me of yes, man. But then there's got to be this self-care, as you say. I guess I'm reminded of my first time jumping off top tower at the pool. You know, the longer you stand there on the edge thinking about it, worrying about it, the, the less likely you are to jump off. Exactly. That's exactly what I'm saying. You get too into your own head. Um, and the one thing that I'm always saying is that you know, it should be joyful. It should be fun. Like, this isn't that why we do these amazing <laughs> careers? Because we should really enjoy the process and enjoy it. And I think by standing at the top of the 10-metre block and looking down for too long, you're just not enjoying it. Like, yeah. You're not enjoying it. Yeah. Um, but if you were flying through the air, you would be enjoying it. Well, you know, the like, first time was hellishly scary, but after that it was fine. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, a lot of people get caught up in their own perfectionism and so they hold back from doing things because they don't have it perfect yet. But you know what? You're never going to have it perfect. And I think the amount and the vast, incredible learning that you can do in imperfectionism is incredible. Like that's, that's what gives you confidence too, is making mistakes and getting up and keeping on going. Your words are so wise, Emma. I thank you so much for sharing them today. You've actually given me a little bit of an eye-opener myself. I get, oh, thank, thanks thank, for having me. Yeah, it's been wonderful. Emma, thank you so much. Pleasure. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. If you're loving our FX Medicine podcasts, please don't forget to share us with your colleagues, family and friends.